It's put up or shut up time. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com and at HoustonChronicle.com. It's Jeremy Wallace. We're closing in on Christmas now. How many sh- How many more shows should we do before Christmas? Only one? No, every week, all the time. You want to do one through the holidays <laughs> every week? Okay, that's that's the kind of dedication this guy has. But let me prove to you why maybe that's a little overzealous. So this week, there are so many stories that we can talk about, so many issues to talk about. But do you agree with me, Jeremy, that I could actually start with any of these and it would just be fine? Yeah. Because yep. there's sort of a trickle of news this week. And this is what happens when you approach the holidays. You get in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Things start to sort of slow down. Although there are no off days for journalists, there's still stuff happening. But as I said, it is put up or shut up time. What do I mean? Well, on Monday, it's the last day that if you want to be on the ballot in Texas, running as a Republican or a Democrat, you have got to get your name on there. You've got to qualify for the ballot. The filing period is over. And people have had a month to think about it, Jeremy. In fact, a lot of them were thinking about it before that and working on it before that. But during this month, you've really got to make up your mind. And so we have seen some big announcements. Last week, the big breaking news, Matthew McConaughey, not running for governor. I learned just before we started the show, he's still not running for governor, even though He's got a few days to figure out what he's doing. Um, You know who else is not running? And this is new this week. This is brand new. This isn't extra holdover breaking news from last week. Matthew Dowd, who uh, national media acted as if he was going to be some kind of a juggernaut who could not be stopped in Texas. Am I being fair with that? Yeah, I, I, I didn't hear all of it, but I still don't really know who Matthew Dowd is, you know, outside of his time with, you know, George W. Bush. Right. He, he, he is a big deal in politics. What, what I was telling some folks um, who do this for a living, who do politics for a living, either political journalism or they are consultants or people who are staffers at the Capitol, lawmakers themselves, folks like that, um, They know who Matthew Dowd is because he's somebody who worked for Governor George W. Bush before he was president, then worked for him as president as well. He also worked for Lieutenant Governor Bob Bullock back in the day. He's one of these crossover guys. He had been a Democrat, then he was a Republican, then he was going to run for Lieutenant Governor as a Democrat and had switched back to the Democratic Party a few years back. And I think he was having some trouble in explaining to Democrats how it's possible that he could run some of the most successful Republican campaigns in the country, including the George W. Bush re-election effort in 2004, and then switch back to being a Democrat. As one friend had said it, you can switch once, right? You can do the party switch once, yeah. right? And, and at some point, people start to not trust whether you're really even on their team. Now, when Dowd first announced that he was going to run for lieutenant governor, which now he has dropped out, but when he first announced, he appeared on MSNBC to talk about why he was running. It was a hard decision to come to because both of us know how tough politics is, especially today. And and I'm sure you have. I have just by speaking out, have gotten death threats, which I'm sure will increase from from the Trump supporters and people that don't like the fact that I've been critical of this. As you know, I have four kids, three sons and a daughter. <clears throat> I've buried two in the course of this. I love this state. I mean, I love Texas. I wasn't born here, but I got here almost 40 years ago. But I hate our politics and I hate what the GOP leadership is doing. And it's not only the rhetoric and the tone and all that, which is very hateful and cruel, but it's the actual policies that are hateful and cruel and undemocratic here. It's hurting people. So I think this candidacy lasted about six weeks, something like that. And dropping out of the race, Dowd said he is stepping aside so that more diverse candidates can get into the field for lieutenant governor. Here's the quote from his statement, Jeremy. When I first announced, the only other candidate was a white male Christian. He went on to say, a diverse field is now emerging in the Democratic primary for this office for lieutenant governor. I do not want to be the one who stands in the way of the greater diversity we need in politics. Close quote. Now, Dowd is, I think... Spinning here, and that's what you would expect from a political operative. He's a seasoned political operative. He's sort of throwing up flack, rolling a grenade into the Democratic Party politically before he heads on out and and rides off into the sunset. You may have seen the reaction 
from Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson, who is African-American, and said, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room here is that you do have some element of racism in the Democratic Party because we don't have more diverse candidates at the top of our ticket. Some other Democrats have agreed with that. Um, but let, let's set it all straight here. Dowd was not, as you said, Jeremy, he was not getting any traction with this campaign. I think there's a difference between um, someone who doesn't have the stomach for going through the crucible of a campaign like this, which it would certainly be, uh, you know, having to go through a primary and then a general election against Texas Republicans who don't just roll over for Democrats, do they? That's not the history around here. So these would be tough races. There's a difference between not having the stomach for it and being lazy. And I, in just, you know, watching this unfold, if your whole strategy is to be on MSNBC, which if you look at the ratings, it's a small group of people who watch that. If your strategy is to just tweet all day, well, Twitter, you know, the users, that's actually a small group. People who pay attention to politics tend to look at it probably a lot more than people who don't. Um, but the fact is that unless you're really you know, doing the work of rolling up your sleeves, traveling around the state, talking to different uh, you know, constituents, uh, talking to different groups you know, within the Democratic or the Republican Party, whichever party you're trying to run for office in, if you're not doing those things, which I didn't see Dowd doing a whole lot of, then you don't really have a shot at office, not in Texas or really anywhere. Yeah. And, and, and let's, you know, be really rational here about this, because so Mike Collier, like I'm not saying he's the best candidate that ever was. But the one thing that Mike Collier is doing, he's going to Democratic events. He's been to, you know, state Democratic Party events. He's been to your local Democratic club. He's he's doing the work on the ground. And what happened here is Dowd realized he was going to get his head handed to him on primary day by Mike Collier. You know, mm -hmm. and so uh, I think what you saw Dow do is what you'd see a lot of presidential candidates do before it gets time to vote. Get out before you get clobbered. Mm -hmm. You know, Julian Castro was going to lose the Texas primary, right. you know, if he had stayed in the race. Why bother staying in then? So get the heck off the ballot. And I think in this case, Dow realized, you know, he didn't, you'll only have about 60 days till early voting starts yeah. in Texas. It's like, so you get 60 days to figure out how to beat you know, Mike Collier, who has just done more work in the Democratic Party. So I think he must have had a cold dose of reality going, oh, wait, I'm not going to have a really good shot of beating even Mike Collier, let alone Dan Patrick. So, yeah, and, yeah. He, you know, did have uh, some success in getting Democrats to talk about whether there's enough diversity on the Democratic ticket. As I said, you saw those comments from yeah. Eric Johnson. Here's what I wrote uh, on social media. I said, look, there has been a consistent debate and robust debate within the Democratic Party as to whether the party's nominees adequately reflect the diversity of the coalition that's necessary to elect Democrats. The anomaly here is a former GOP operative lecturing Democrats about diversity on their ticket. Some of the other folks who are getting into uh, politics or trying to have a comeback in politics, I know some of the Texas legislative nerds will love this. Debbie Riddle, former state representative from the Houston area, arch conservative who was beaten by Valerie Swanson, uh, who was the uh, author. You saw she was carrying the bill uh, that had to do with transgender children in yep. uh, youth sports. Debbie Riddle, who was the original uh, person to talk about the terror babies, which we talked about a couple shows ago, the, the idea that you had um, uh, terrorists coming into the United States, having babies as quote anchor babies so that those babies would then be U.S. citizens that could come back into the United States. They could move more freely across our borders, and therefore it would be easier for them to launch a terrorist attack. None of this was, was true at all. But years ago, a few cycles ago, the person who said that, Riddle, was deemed not conservative enough <laughs> by Texas Republicans and was beaten. You see where I'm going with this? Was, was beaten by Valerie Swanson, who then goes on to champion the ban on transgender children in youth sports. I guess it's just the circle of life, Jeremy that you have, you know, folks wanting to at least be given a shot to, you know, to, to, you know figure out whether they're conservative enough. Um, we see people filing for Congress. We see people filing for state rep and state Senate and all of that. We'll continue to track all of it before the deadline on Monday. And you can check all, all of our coverage out at uh, quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com. There is some breaking news in the Texas abortion case uh, today at the U.S. Supreme Court. And let's make sure I've got this right. 
Here's our headline. U.S. Supreme Court rules that abortion providers can continue to challenge SB 8, that's Senate Bill 8, the six-week abortion ban that is enforced through civil lawsuits, but the law stands for now. So unless I'm reading this wrong, Jeremy, we're basically legally where we were yesterday, right? The law is still in effect, and people can still sue abortion providers, and anybody who has even talked about, uh, you know, helping a woman get an abortion, uh, all of that uh, is still... In effect, this was ma- mainly procedural. This had to do with whether those abortion providers and the Biden administration could intervene in this case, whether they had standing to do it. All of the, all of this has to do with the way the enforcement mechanism um, basically uh, is set up to sort of evade judicial review, which was a big uh, issue as this was heard at the Supreme Court. But on the merits, just to be clear, they didn't even talk about that yet. They didn't really get into that yet, whether abortion can be banned at six weeks. We'll want to watch that case out of Mississippi closely on that, because that has to do with the issue of viability uh, before the 20 or 24 weeks that we've, you know, sort of come to have as the law of the land in the United States under Roe versus Wade. The Department of Justice also moving forward against Texas over redistricting. And this is going to get pretty interesting. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that lawsuit in Washington. As the Supreme Court has observed, a core principle of our democracy is that, quote, voters should choose the representatives, not the other way around, close quote. Section two of the Voting Rights Act requires that state voting laws, including laws that draw electoral maps, provide eligible voters with an equal opportunity to participate in the democratic process and elect representatives of their choosing. The complaint we filed today alleges that Texas has violated Section 2 by creating redistricting plans that deny or abridge the rights of Latino and black voters to vote on account of their race, color, or membership in a language minority group. The Associate Attorney General, um, Vanita Gupta, said that GOP legislators here in Austin intended to discriminate against black and Latino voters. The redistricting plans approved by the Texas state legislature and signed into law by the governor will deny black and Latino voters an equal opportunity to participate in the voting process and to elect representatives of their choice in violation of the Voting Rights Act. Our complaint also alleges that several of those districts were drawn with discriminatory intent. Texas's 2021 redistricting plans were enacted through a rushed process with minimal opportunity for public comment, without any expert testimony, and with an overall disregard for the massive minority population growth in Texas over the last decade. Texas's population grew by 4 million people from 2010 to 2020, and 95% of that growth came from minority populations. Despite this significant increase in the number and proportion of eligible Latino and black voters in Texas, the newly enacted redistricting plans will not allow minority voters an equal opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. Now, Texas Republicans, including the attorney general, say that this lawsuit is absurd. They're going to fight it in court. Uh, Paxton's uh, office will fight it in court, of course, as the uh, lawyer for the state. I can tell you just objectively what uh, the associate attorney general said there, uh, Jeremy, about this being a rushed process. That's true. Right. I mean, and, and this, of course, was because the census numbers were not uh, distributed by the federal government to the states until later in the year. The Republican legislature brought up redistricting. This was after uh, the whole standoff over the other bill uh, dealing with elections, which is just the omnibus elections bill. Some people hate the word omnibus. I love it. I want to say it in every broadcast. It just yep. means the giant bill about that about that issue. Uh, but redistricting was done. In a very hasty way. I mean, I have seen in the past where uh, redistricting hearings could last for days. They might schedule it, uh, you know, over over the course of several days and they would do hearings in different parts of the state so that people in, uh, you know, in East Texas, West Texas, South Texas, uh, you know, in Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth and Austin, San Antonio and everywhere would have a chance to weigh in on what was happening. And we saw the redistricting chairman in the House, Todd Hunter, a Republican from Corpus Christi. At one point, he told other members of the redistricting committee that expert testimony might be entertained after the bills were voted out of the committee. And of course, that's when I started to get, and we talked about it here on the show, that's when I was getting text messages from staffers and others, just the text would just say WTF. Like, what are you supposed to do with that? 
I think when it comes to what may happen on this, uh, and you know, you get asked about this all the time, redistricting, it's a very complicated subject, and unwinding it for people is, is difficult. Um, if anyone thinks they know exactly what will happen here, I would say they're not right. There are all sorts of things that could happen. Let me give you an example. If and because there are multiple legal challenges, including this one just added this week, there are other groups that are suing. There are, uh, you know, individual plaintiffs, voters who are suing as well, uh, saying that these maps illegally dilute the voting strength of blacks and especially Latinos around the state. Um, those have not included just going to state district court in Austin, where, of course, a Democratic judge could weigh in on that and say, you know what? And they could do this. This is how powerful a judge is. They could say, you know what? You have to halt the whole primary for right now. And they could say, you have to reopen the filing period or yeah. just put a stop to it right now, put a pause on it. Uh, in the meantime, while we figure this out in Texas now, it used to be that all of the appellate uh, courts, including the state Supreme Court, that all of them were Republican judges. But that's not true anymore. In the third court of appeals here in central Texas, there are some Democrats. So you might have somebody file a suit in Travis County, have them put the primary on hold, and then have the third court of appeals say, you know what, we'll take it under advisement, <laughs> which would cause you know a huge problem everywhere. Now, I'm not predicting that that's going to happen. I'm just saying that that's what could happen. Uh, we'll see what happens with these other lawsuits, Jeremy, but I think there are some legitimate questions here about whether the Republican legislature um, did dilute those votes. And we've talked in, at, at some length here on the show you know, for example, in West Dallas County, or excuse me, in East Dallas County, where uh, you have heavy Latino populations in uh, in Western, um, uh, uh, excuse me, in, in Eastern Fort Worth, you have two Latino neighborhoods that are just completely shut off, uh, you know, from, uh, from the kind of representation they, that they had before. And the main thing about the Voting Rights Act and whatever, you know, you can get into the weeds of all these different districts. But the main thing about the Voting Rights Act now is that the window for legal challenges has been severely narrowed to only challenging them on whether they are racially discriminatory. Yep. You can't say anymore that they're too Republican or too Democratic. These plaintiffs, including the Justice Department, they'll have to prove that Republicans were and you know, the Justice Department is going a little bit further in saying that Republicans intended to do, to do this. But under the Voting Rights Act, it doesn't even have to be intentional. Right. Yeah, if they, exactly. If they if they if they cut down on the strength of minorities being able to choose who they want as their representatives in the halls of power in Austin and Washington, it makes the maps problematic. Well, exactly. And you saw that with, you know, State Senator Joan Huffman out of Houston, who was, you know, during the, you know, all the redistricting discussions about the congressional map, you heard her say probably one million times that these maps were drawn race blind. And she made, you know, a particular emphasis to repeat that over and over again, you know, mm -hmm. to say that race was not factored into decisions of re you know, drawing this district or that district. When questions would come at her, she would like have that as a standard answer. So they knew this kind of court challenge was coming. And I think they think, you know, by using the, the, the wording that they did, you know, from a legal standpoint, that they're going to have some protections in there saying, hey, you know, we, we can do what we want partisan-wide. We can move Democrats and Republicans however the heck we want. Mm -hmm. uh, and But no, we didn't touch anything related to race. You know, it's like she's right. going to be able to point to the, to the tape. Look at the tape. And you heard it actually during some of the debates is like, you know, to make the record clear, I want to make sure everybody understands this, you know, was drawn race blind. Mm -hmm. So I think they did everything they can, they think, to inoculate them from this kind of, you know, lawsuit. There was even, and by the way, on those districts I was talking about, um, for the one in Dallas County that I mentioned, to make sure I get it right, uh, in uh, western Dallas County, you go over to Irving, uh, and this is going to be one of the things that they look at in a congressional seat. Uh, there you have Latino neighborhoods that have been, as some put it, submerged into a district that is overwhelmingly Anglo and goes all the way out to East Texas, out to Jacksonville. What do people in Jacksonville have anything in common with folks in Irving? I think that's a big question mark other than just trying to elect a congressman who's a Republican. And this is also one of those things that makes it difficult to talk about you know, the partisanship versus uh, racial uh, discrimination and all that is that the courts have viewed over the years um, the, the issues of race and partisanship as proxies for each other because Democrats 
are the ones who generally elect more minorities as as elected figures, right? And yep. Republicans have a history of electing more uh, uh, white people. Period. Now, there are some exceptions to that, of course. But on that question of, you know, like what we were talking about with Matthew Dowd, when he says they don't have enough diversity in the Democratic Party, look at the court record on these um, redistricting cases. Um, the fact is that Democrats all across Texas and the nation have a much better record of electing minorities to office right, than Republicans do. And it, by the way, these kind of challenges, it's one of the reasons that Republicans want to do better. When it comes to that sort of thing, right? If you yeah. go into a redistricting lawsuit um, and the accusation from Democrats is that this is all racial and that you're discriminating against people, um, Dan Patrick, for example, would love to have another uh, Hispanic Republican senator in the Texas Senate, right? That's part of the reason for why he would like to have that. It's part of the reason you have Republicans going all over the place trying to recruit more minority candidates, not just for the uh, optics of that. But if you're the Republican lawyer you're dealing with a lawsuit like this and they say you're racially discriminating and you're able to say, well, actually, we're electing all these minorities to office, it would really blunt the argument quite a bit. What was the deal with Dan Crenshaw fighting with people in his own party this week? It seemed, it's not new for him to do that, right, Jeremy? Yeah. But, but he was just sort of at – he and some different groups at each other's throats. Yeah. I think that's fair. He was on social media on where I saw this was on Twitter, and he was uh, getting some pushback from the Freedom Caucus about this issue of creating a database to track people who have been vaccinated. And Crenshaw, in a Twitter video, said he wanted to set the record straight about all of this. There are something called immunization information systems uh, at every state. These have long existed. In the American Rescue Plan, passed entirely by Democrats, no Republicans voted for it. They added about $500 million to that system and told states to, quote, make them better, right? They didn't put any guardrails. They didn't put any details. They just said, make them better. Now, this worried Republicans because we're worried about these authoritarian blue state governors that indeed do want to track your data and, and do want to employ vaccine mandates and passports and the such. And so there was a Republican-led effort for this exact provision to decrease the funding for it and ensure that if states take that money, they have to make the data anonymous and only collect it at the population level so that you can't be tracked. So the Republicans screaming about this bill saying it's bad, it's it does the exact opposite of what they're saying. And they know that, but they also don't like explaining votes to you. That's the truth. A lot of explaining there from Crenshaw. Then he was at an event in the Houston area, a Republican grassroots event. And who are the two people he's supporting uh, for Congress, it's uh, Morgan Luttrell and Wes Hunt. Yeah, Wesley, Wesley Hunt's Hunt, running for that new 38th congressional mm -hmm. district in Houston. Right. And, you know, Luttrell is running for that new, what would have been the old Kevin Brady district that okay. now takes up a lot of Montgomery County and parts of Harris County. So he was on stage with the two of them in front of some Republican activists. And they looked, Luttrell and Hunt looked a little nervous in the video that I saw while, while uh, Crenshaw was talking about this. Um, Crenshaw said that for those Freedom Caucus members in Washington, like Lauren Boebert and Louis Gohmert uh, from Texas, who's running for attorney general, he said that those folks are not uh, willing to really take tough votes. He said that they're basically performance artists in their own party. That's the way he put it. There's two types of members of Congress. There's performance artists there's legislators. Now, the performance artists are the ones that get all the attention. They're the ones you think are more conservative because they know how to say slogans real well. They know how to recite the lines that they know that our voters want to hear. Performance artists. Well, the immediate pushback from some people was, wasn't Crenshaw the one who went skydiving in a campaign ad so that he would look like a superhero with a bionic eye? You're an F-22 pilot. What were you doing working under a helicopter? I have no idea what I was doing, but typical Air Force fixing the Army's problems. This guy, this guy, damn, bro, you could have just texted me, man. Why you gotta jump out of an airplane? It's still been because it's cooler to jump, never mind. It is cooler to jump out of the airplane. Now, Crenshaw trashed the Freedom Caucus members, saying that, and he was pointing to their voting record, saying that uh, when it came to supporting President Trump on his actual agenda and not just rhetoric, uh, Crenshaw said that people like Adam Kinzinger, who's been a Trump critic, 
was better on that uh, front, you know, and actually voting for Trump's priorities than the Freedom Caucus was. And of course, that made the crowd cringe as well. What you hear so often is not true. It's not true. We have grifters in our midst. Not here, not like in this room. That's not what I mean. I mean in the conservative movement. Lie after lie after lie because they know something psychologically about the conservative heart. We're worried about what people are going to do to, do to us, what they're going to infringe upon us. How has it taken people so long to notice this, Jeremy? Um, you had reported on the fact that he was also at odds with this group called Gun Owners of America, and that's actually been a long-running thing. His frustration with them really boiled over this week as well, right? Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of this, you know, I think kind of goes back to, you know, back in 2019 after the El Paso shooting, uh, you know, Crenshaw was among, you know, other Republicans said, okay, well, well, maybe there's some things we can look at. And he, and he brought up the idea of maybe there's a way to talk about red flag laws. That's all it took for him to create a whole slew of enemies in the gun rights movement, at least with some groups. Gun Owners of America is particularly one of them who have been trailing him around to events and occasionally will do these videos where like they intercept them and they say, why do you like red flag laws so much? You know, (laughs) and he says, that's not true. You know, as in they go, ah, see, you know, Crenshaw won't even answer our questions, you know. And so they've been picking at him, you know, so frequently it's really gotten under his skin. And like, and so after that whole ordeal in Harris County, uh, this weekend, you know, he put out a letter, you know, to his supporters, you know, where he, you know, specifically lined up that like there's, you know, again, start talking about the grifters in the party in the in within yeah. the conservative movement and people who are trying to raise money off of you. And, you know, the Gun Owners of America is one of those groups that he's been just having a running battle with that he is as frustrated with. You know, and and there's some other even more fringy gun groups that are kind of going after him, too. So I think that's just kind of gotten under his skin. And it all kind of goes back to just, again, a simple phrase that he had said where he was willing to look at red flag laws. Mm -hmm. That alone just kind of excommunicated him with some gun groups. Although it must be said, you know, he still has support from the NRA. And in his letter to his supporters, he said, oh, no, they're, they're great. Continue to support the NRA and good right. gun groups like that, but others, you know who they are, <laughs> don't support. <laughs> right, and it should be said, the gun owners of America and some of those other groups you're talking about, they are the ones who would say the NRA is, quote, too liberal, yeah. unquote, right? So just for some perspective on all that. Well, yeah, and just to kind of you know, round it out, so like you know, after, you know, the, the in the National Defense Authorization Act that went through Congress this last week, it yeah. you know, there were some gun groups who were concerned that there was going to be a red flag law provision in that, you know, that dealt with the military. Uh, and and it was not in that bill. And so Crenshaw was specifically going after them this week where he was saying, look, you know, there's a lot of groups telling you there's stuff in that bill that's not. There is no red flag provision. And so he ended in his email, you know, in a very, very Dan Crenshaw-ish way, ends up saying, look, anybody who's telling that, it's BS. That's literally his his quote. It's BS. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's, you know, and he goes off on how these guys are just trying to raise money and how they're peddling a lot of inaccurate information. So I think a lot of his frustration with the gun owners of America is what you kind of heard in that, you know, rant about the, uh, the, the grifters, the, the grifters too, mm-hmm. you know, where he talked about the, 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 you know, wings of the party. You know, I think he's, there's a growing frustration for, Crenshaw, who sees himself as a guy who's trying to get some governance done, you know, in a world in which there's a lot of people who maybe aren't rowing the boat, you know, and helping out on that front. Right. Uh, Texas now reporting an increase in COVID cases. We have more deaths from the disease as well. Jeremy will have the numbers and some context in just a second. But Governor Abbott on Fox Business Channel said that we have a low rate of infection compared to other states. And he was talking about the different things his administration is doing to try to combat the pandemic. One reason uh, that we've been able to achieve that is because we've been open uh, 100%. Uh, there are no vaccine mandates or mass mandates. And so uh, it, it shows uh, that we can remain open and uh, help livelihoods 
while also making sure that we do a good job of protecting lives. Now, as it concerns the new variant, we're being very aggressive in trying to address it. Uh, the Department of State Health Services is working with local health care providers across the entire state to uh, be able to uh, test samples of COVID positive cases to determine whether or not they do contain the new variant. Uh, we're working to make sure that vaccines are available to anybody who wants uh, a vaccine and, and also uh, working to make sure that we uh, make it easier for people to get a test so they can determine whether or not they uh, may have uh, the new variant or just have the Delta variant, whatever the case may be. Uh, but also we, uh, in, in anticipation uh, of a potential increase in hospitalizations. Uh, we're working to uh, uh, surge more nursing and, and medical personnel to make sure that our hospitals mm. will be able to deal with it. You still awake over there? Uh, so Abbott uh, laying out all the different things he says they're doing. Some of that seems to run counter to what best practices would be if you're actually trying to contain the disease. Where are we now with the numbers on this journey? Uh, going up and like, you know, concerningly so it's like, so, you know, some regions are worse than others, you know, really what, you know, Abbott, what you could hear a little bit of what he was kind of pushing back against is what's happening up in Amarillo right now, mm -hmm. where the hospitalizations have gone through the roof. It's like, it's not, you know, uh, the Amarillo Globe News had a quote from uh, a, a hospital executive there, Brian Weiss of the Northwest Texas healthcare system says, I am panicked. You know, so you don't like that's not a great phrasing to have. Right. You know, but they're seeing such an increase in the number of hospitalizations there and they've lost workers, you know, through the pandemic. And so there's this added crush going on where they're really concerned that there's a low vaccination rate in the panhandle. And mm -hmm. those people are filling up the hospital. About 85 percent of the people they're getting there are you know, unvaccinated people. Right. El Paso is another place where they're they're in a complete panic. It was just sad to kind of see the uh, the mayor in El Paso this week, you know, said, look, you know, these numbers are sobering. And I think people should start wearing face coverings and practicing social distancing again. Mm -hmm. It felt like a flashback to where we were a year ago. Right. Yeah. And so it's kind of concerning. We have elements, you know, parts of this state right now that, you know, are getting hit really, really hard. Uh, and you see, like, we're going to have another wave here. I'm assuming, you know, what happens in Amarillo and El Paso eventually is going to come to the rest of the state. I can't imagine we're going to be able to, you know, prevent that from spreading. Yeah. Uh, and Lubbock is starting to go up now, too. So, but overall, we're, we're over 73,000 people who have died, mm -hmm. you know, through all these, you know, additional deaths that we've just reported in these last couple of months. So, yeah, And you would think based on some of the reporting that we have seen that our large urban areas would have higher vaccination rates than some of the places you're talking about, like in Amarillo out in the panhandle. There was an interesting story NPR had the other day. They did a breakdown of the vaccination rates in states uh, and in counties where um, the where the vote went more for Trump. It meant people were not getting vaccinated at, at very high rates. If they voted for the Democrats, it was the other way. More people were getting uh, vaccinated. That would seem to be something that might be obvious on its face that, uh, you know, certain people within the Republican Party, not everybody, uh, but uh, a lot of folks very susceptible to misinformation. I'll give you an example from my own life. Somebody who I love dearly had sent me an article about how uh, people who are vaccinated are the ones who are going to hospitals and dying. And it had all these numbers that seemed like if you didn't know anything about it, you might think this looks legit. And then I looked at what they were linking to, the source they were linking to, and all I had to do was Google the source they were linking to. And the first thing that came up was about how this website, where this information was originating, was was sort of a masterclass in fake information. <laughs> and, and, and so this is the kind of thing that people send to each other it's, it's as easily transmitted as the disease, just click, 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 and they think they're looking at something legitimate, and they're not. They're getting bad information, um, and it seems that there are just a whole lot of people, Jeremy, even some people who, you know, they might not be the most opposed ever to getting a vaccine, uh, but when they're exposed to information that's bad about it, they're susceptible to it, and they're not. And you know, this is something that uh, we've been dealing with for years in this country, if not decades. Of people, it's more of a trend, uh, and it gets worse and worse all the time. Of people who will just believe the email that pops in from some random source. You have no idea. It's not a that source is not accountable to anyone. And then what's in the newspaper? They think that that's fake. Yeah, and that's really a huge problem for us here in Texas and all across the country. 
Yeah, the good news is our, our you know, so 60% of people five and up uh, are now vaccinated in the state. So that's a good sign. Uh, but, you know, it's like it's still way behind some other places. You, you look at places like New York where, you know, over 80% of people have been vaccinated. And they're just, you know, bre- better prepared to stay out of the hospital. And, and so, but you see what, you know, the problem here we're having in Texas is that as you have that, you know, that unvaccinated population going to the hospitals, but the hospital systems have less workers than they had before. You see the potential for strain is even more so, even with fewer people going to to the hospital so you can yeah. just see and and that affects all of us because that means like your other you know health conditions mm-hmm. you know, start becoming a problem like so you know even if like you know you have somebody who needs like a knee surgery or you know some sort of other outpatient surgery some easy you know procedure those things might get put off again because of what we're facing now you know in amarillo there's just no you know icu beds in el paso too they're just yeah. running out of icu beds too quickly that any sort of car accident or, you know, other you know, issues in that region yeah. stresses out the entire system. And that is what the concern is. It's like, you know, it's like there's a lot of people who think of this as like, oh, vaccinated, unvaccinated people are just taking their lives in their own hand. No, they're affecting the entire system. So other people right. who have other health conditions are now closed off from getting that care that maybe they needed or they have to postpone something that, you know, doesn't on the face of it sound like an emergency, but affects their quality of life. You know, one of the, it just occurred to me, one of the big pushbacks against um, any nationalization of health care or the reforms that were made under the Affordable Care Act, a lot of folks who right now don't want to get a vaccine, they would have agreed with the argument that they don't want to see rationing of health care. Yeah. And if anybody thinks that any of this information we're giving you is fake, the things that Jeremy just talked about that sort of rationing of healthcare, moving back, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, moving people to the back of the line because whatever their condition is isn't as serious as something else that they're putting to the front of the line. That has all happened within the last two years because yeah. of COVID, right? So if you don't want to see rationing of healthcare, I have an idea get a vaccine. All right. Abbott doesn't really want to talk that much about the COVID response. He, he'll talk about it when asked, which he did on Fox. The disaster he's focused on is the U.S.-Mexico border. Here he is on Fox again. The Biden administration has tied the hands of, of both the Border Patrol as well as ICE. They have insufficient number of personnel on the border to secure the, door, the border. And that's exactly why Texas has 10,000 National Guard and Texas Department of Public Safety officers on the border. That's why we are erecting these barriers on the border. And it's exactly why Texas is building its own border wall. I'm going to get to this new poll that was out this week in just a second. I'm just going to say this. The governors focused on the border. It was the issue that was top of the list in this new Quinnipiac poll as far as what Texans are concerned about. Meantime, his Democratic challenger for his office, Beto O'Rourke, is crisscrossing the state. That was a Beto rally in Austin at another event. He was talking about attacks on abortion rights and said that some of the legislation passed over the last decade by Republican legislators doesn't just deal with abortion. It affects women in other ways as well. There has been incremental destruction of women's health care in the state of Texas over the last 10 years. Um, reproductive health care clinics have closed across the state. And what does that mean? It means, yes, it is harder to get an abortion in now virtually impossible. But it also means that it's very hard for women to get a cervical cancer screening. It means that it's harder to get reproductive health care, health advice, guidance, and it means that it's tough to get birth control. So Beto is a little hard to hear there in that event, although he is doing the work of going around to all these different places. And so sometimes the video or audio you hear from these events isn't the most crisp audio you've ever heard in your life. But he was talking about, um, you know, cervical uh, cancer screenings. It's tougher to get birth control because of some of the laws that have been passed and that sort of thing. Uh, women's health care, something that's on the minds of voters, the border on the minds of voters. I think the Texas electricity grid is probably on the minds of voters. It's certainly something that both Beto and the governor have talked about and have their own, you know, each have their own argument to make on what's going to happen with the grid this uh, this winter and maybe next summer as well. But in this poll from Quinnipiac on the governor's race, kind of made some people's eyes bug out, Jeremy, that it that it had Abbott up 15 points 
over Beto O'Rourke. You went through the numbers. What did you see in there? Yeah, okay, there's a. I put all sorts of caveats on this. Okay, you okay. know, people should you know never you know a year out from a you know from an election, polls have some limited value. All right, as I, I think people are kind of losing their lunch on That's both nice sides of it. this stuff. So a year some in limited poli- value. Yeah. A year in politics is a lifetime. Let's right. just like remember that. Always remember that phrase. We got a long way to go. Uh, and 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 that being said, you know Quinnipiac University, which is you know, a small college in Connecticut has only been polling the state of Texas since 2018. This is really only the second governor's race they have ever tried to do in Texas. Uh, In 2018, you know, like all the other pollsters, they struggled with Texas and what, you know, the turnout was not what they expected. Mm -hmm. And so they had, they had Ted Cruz winning his Senate race by nine percentage points back then. And if Mm -hmm. you remember, he ended up winning it by less than three three percent. So right. you got to put that into the context of as Quinnipiac takes another run at this, you know, the, you know what they're seeing. They do do a good job in asking in depth questions. They show us their methodology. Mm-hmm. They show us the questions. They do they do a lot more open ended stuff so we can kind of see the numbers. And what I saw in there is it's like you know you know that I do take away is that you know I think is it probably accurate. Beto O'Rourke's negatives are higher now than they were in the Ted Cruz race when he mm-hmm. was going as Ted Cruz at about the same point. Right. Uh, and that makes some sense. You know, it's like, you know, Beto has been out there now in the public Eastosphere for a long time. Now he had that entire presidential campaign in which like his language on guns and things like that could have easily, you know, pushed his negatives up high. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the the best thing to kind of take out of this thing. You know, Beto O'Rourke goes into this race with higher negatives than he's he's had to deal with in 2018. And Abbott's negatives are high. And don't get me wrong. It's like he has a lot to overcome too. And he's more, he's closer to where Ted Cruz is. And we've talked about this on the show before. Yeah. He's cl- his negatives are closer to where Ted Cruz's were uh, than where he, even he was in 2018. So you see like the problem here for this race and like, it's a bad sign for people who want to watch television in 2022, but there's already a lot of negative energy, you know, yes. in this race for both candidates. Right. So they're going to be in a position where they have to really continue to tear down their opponents at some point if they're going to get an advantage. So brace yourself, Texas, we're going to get some really seriously negative ads. <laughs> well, it also makes some sense that uh, Beto's negatives would be higher. Um, he's also just not the same happy warrior that he was before. Exactly. Right. I mean, yep. you and I talked about this a little bit. Um, he is not just doing his, you know, happy dancing on the tables at diners all over the place as he's running the way he was doing when he was running for president or when he was running for U.S. Senate and everything was more of an aspirational message, something that yep. was, you know, really trying to be a feel-good campaign only, right? He was very uh, hesitant to go on the attack against Senator Ted Cruz. I mean, you you uh, had said that you thought it was fair to say that, um, that Beto was almost just averse to even doing that at all. With Cruz, even if you would ask him a question about Cruz, he would try to go back to talking about positive stuff instead of go on the yeah. attack against Cruz. But with this race, he is right out of the gate talking yeah. about Greg Abbott and all the things that he thinks that Greg Abbott has messed up. Yeah, he's trying to make sure people don't forget the negative things and trying to pin these negative things on him. Like, remember, it's like if we don't have a power outage, you know, of some sort during this winter, it's like it's going to be almost two years, you know, since that had happened. Will voters remember that in the same way? You know, the American electorate has a very short attention span on this kind of stuff. You know, what happened two years ago can seem like a million years ago. You know, it's like, you know, government shutdowns and things we think are going to be big, you know, like fake from the memory really quickly and so it's like you know what about what's happened lately and so o'rourke and we talked about this a little bit last week it's like o'rourke you know he wants to go big and bold on you know you know i'll fix the energy grid Mm -hmm. it's like and the thing is it's like you know can that message last long enough it will have the shelf life to fuel a reason to take greg abbott out of office right the incumbent doesn't just get beaten they get fired. Yes. That is the way it works. When you have somebody who's in office, you have if you're the challenger, you have to make the case that you should fire them and hire me to do the job. Yep. It seems like Beto understands that a little bit better this time around. I don't know. That doesn't mean that his message is necessarily, necessarily landing. I had thought it would be interesting to see 
where the electricity grid would rank in the list of issues if they had asked about it, but they didn't. That was my criticism of the poll. It's something that has been so central so far to the argument that is being had between O'Rourke and Abbott, because it's not like Beto talks about it and Abbott doesn't also have comments. Yes. Right. Abbott said that he can guarantee, as we talked about last week, he can guarantee that the lights will stay on. If they don't, that could be a death sentence for his political career, right? I mean, it, let's say there is a two or three day blackout period in Texas. Um, I think that would flip the script. It would be very difficult for the governor to overcome that after all the assurances he has made when he could have been saying things like, look, the legislature at my behest has passed some key reforms. There's a lot more work to do and we're working on it. They're doing a version of that. But Abbott just keeps giving the Democrats everything they need on a silver platter to go after him uh, if the lights don't stay on. The statistical likelihood, though, is that the grid would be just fine. Because, and as somebody else put it the other day, it's not necessarily that the grid is in any better shape. It's really not all cha- changed all that much. Uh, but we may just luck into a warmer winter, right? It may it may be that uh, you know people are in swimsuits in February because this is Texas. That could easily be the case. But as you pointed out, if you had rolling blackouts in july or august that could be even worse for the governor I, I think it would be worse for the governor because then you're going right into the election right after that well and the, and the issue that governor abbott still has which i think this poll kind of missed a little bit on was the fact that he has this primary election coming up you know it's like he has an intense you know a couple of opponents for sure that are going to keep pushing him and they've been pushing him and so like he has another 3 months of going further and further right potentially which only opens the door for you know better work to try to continue to make a case for those more independent minded you know voters on some of these issues i'm not saying he's going to be successful in doing it but i think you know abbott opens the door when he has to counter you know guys like alan west and don huffines and mm-hmm. now chad prather who did officially qualified again on the ballot so we'll yeah. talk about him more but you know so we have these three candidates who are pushing 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 and we've seen at least in some cases like on the border you know some of the language that abbott has you know absorbed has sounded more and more like those guys at times mm-hmm. you know more so than i think i would have expected say a year ago but you know right. so we have another couple months of this and so how much further to the right will abbott feel like he have to go mm-hmm. to make sure he's okay to get 50 percent of the vote you know come march 1st He certainly does not want to be in a runoff because for someone who is viewed by grassroots Republicans as the establishment candidate, and I'm saying that very specifically for a reason, I think he would never want to be called the establishment, even though he is. He's been in office for decades, and and Dan Patrick has has become the same thing. Um, For someone who's the establishment, being in a runoff is a nightmare. Yes. Right? Because that usually means you're on your way out uh, because of the way the runoff law works in Texas, if you you know, if you get over 50 percent, you're good. You are the nominee. If you don't, then that means more than 50 percent voted for someone other than you. And you're in that position to be fired as the incumbent. Um, I did think the reaction from supporters of O'Rourke, I had forgotten that in many I'm going to be diplomatic about this. In many ways, they could be more intense than even the cruise crew people way yeah. back in 2012 that they're very fired up about their candidate. That's good for his prospects, right? You want a fired up base, but I'm going to give you a little treat listener. Uh, for any of you who follow my Twitter, you should see my draft folder. I don't, I don't always share what's in the drafts, but I'm going to share this one. I didn't tweet it out, but I, I had it uh, written out, and I was about to tweet it yesterday. What's in Scott's drafts? This could be a little feature on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Here was my, here's what I said, uh, or here's what I didn't say. This is in the draft. If Beto supporters are going to go full outrage over a poll showing a Democrat losing statewide in Texas, this is going to be a long, miserable year. All right. In the race for attorney general, you saw that uh, the incumbent, who also doesn't want to be fired, was with President Trump last night. Yep. With the former president at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. And from all indications, it was a love fest. Of course, Trump is endorsing Ken Paxton, the incumbent AG, in the Republican primary and in the general election as well. Um, and here's President Trump lavishing Paxton with what I would call high but non-specific praise. And Ken, I'll tell you what, uh, I am with you so much, you have no idea. You have no idea. You have done an incredible job. 
and you are a courageous person. Thank you very much. I am with you so much that you have no idea. No idea. And you are a courageous person. Um, in this race, Jeremy, I'm not sure we've talked about it exactly this way. Let me just ask this question. Is it just a race that hinges completely on the Trump endorsement and that's it? You've got all of these candidates now running. you got Paxton, who has the Trump endorsement. you got George P. Bush, who was, as is my understanding, was basically begging for the Trump endorsement and did not get it. You've got Louis Gohmert, who, if anyone could convince Trump to withdraw his endorsement from Paxton and, and put, you know, give him the endorsement instead, it could be Gohmert, right? Yeah. Um, and you've got Eva Guzman, who is the former Texas Supreme Court justice, who I think is pretty conservative, but would be more in the same political lane with George P. Bush, would be a little bit more, and I know they don't want to hear this, but a little bit more establishment, right? Probably, view, I'll say it this way, viewed by some grassroots Republicans as establishment. But in a race like this, if you've got the Trump endorsement, the full endorsement, he's appearing with you at Mar-a-Lago, raising money for you and saying, you're a courageous person. You have my full endorsement. Is that just game over? Is all the rest of this just, uh, you know, an academic exercise? It, Boy, it's hard not to think that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's like it feels like a lot to overcome. Uh, you got to think about who's going to be voting in the Republican primary. Who are your best Republican primary voters? Mm -hmm. They're your most intense Republican activists. They're the ones who were with you know Trump you know, to the very bit bitter end. So Trump's endorsement does carry a whole heck of a lot of weight with a large portion of who we expect to turn out. Remember, turnout in a primary in Texas is traditionally terrible <laughs> like terrible terrible like mm -hmm. oh my god i can't believe nobody ever votes in this thing um right but, in, the, in the election of consequence no one votes yeah exactly people and the wonder, democratic people right well people across the country that we always get this question from you know the new york times washington post whoever else is covering texas nationally they you know they swoop in here and they, they parachute into texas to you know report on it for a week and everybody wonders, why do we get this sort of extreme politics in Texas? Yeah. A state of 30 million people that is so geographically and ethnically diverse and all the rest. Well, in the election of consequence, no one votes. Yeah. Yeah. That's Literally a couple thousand people decide or actually like 200 people decided Dan Crenshaw would actually right. be a member of Congress. He won that, you know, he got into the runoff for the primary by 155 little votes. <laughs> you know, you can see how easily uh, an election get, can get turned in Texas in a primary because there's just not enough people voting. And so it's a very limited pool. And Paxton, when he's putting out those Trump, you know, endorsement any sort of reminders that he's speaking to the most likely people to show up to vote at mm -hmm. a primary in March when most people are already kind of thinking about baseball season or whatever right. the heck else is going on. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that there were two meetings between George P. Bush and former President Trump. Uh, one of them happened earlier in the year before Trump had endorsed in this race, in the attorney general's race, and the other happened after the endorsement had been made. The first meeting was pretty straightforward and probably not even all that interesting. Uh, basically, just Bush went there and asked for the endorsement because he wanted it and he thought it was important. You remember, and we had reported on it here and people saw it on my Twitter feed. One of the uh, most viewed photos I've ever tweeted out was of the koozie that was being given to yeah. people at George P. Bush's kickoff event that had the picture of George P. Bush and Trump on one side of the koozie. And it had the quote from Trump that said something like, this is the only Bush that got it right. This is the Bush that likes me. <laughs> I like him. And it wasn't an endorsement, but it kind of reads like an endorsement, right? I had, after that was tweeted out, 6 million views, something like that. And the reason was that it was being, that uh, tweet was being embedded in stories nationally with the Washington Post, New York Times, or whatever else. I can't remember who all quoted it. Um, but I had all these different national media outlets calling me and emailing me, whether it was CBS News or the guy from the Washington Post or whatever. They were just asking one question. Is that real? It, yeah. can that, is, is, that, is that serious? That that's, that's Bush's pitch to people? I said, yeah, basically, yes. He's throwing his whole family under the bus, the Bush dynasty. They're all a bunch of idiots, essentially. I'm the only one that Trump likes. He likes me. Yes. And it was there embodied in this koozie. So the first meeting between them, this is from sources close to some people who are familiar with the conversations. I'll say it that way. 
They said that Bush asked for the endorsement. Trump said no. And then he went with Ken Paxton. That was pretty straightforward. The second meeting, as I understood it, was based on the idea that Jeb Bush, George P.'s father, was trying to figure out how much he really wants to put his shoulder into this race as far as trying to raise money for P and you know doing things for his son and all of that. Um, and so he um, so George P. Bush went to go meet with Trump again and just wanted to know to what degree Trump is really going to be involved in the race. Is it just that he's endorsing Paxton and that's it? Or is he going to come to Texas and campaign for him? Is he going to cut a lot more videos, do events for him, help him fundraise and things like that? Think about the fact that George P. Bush's fundraising has not been, I mean, it's not bad, but it's not stellar either, right? I mean, he's been raising numbers. He's been putting up numbers that are fine, but in the context of the kind of money his father was able to raise, they're kind of pathetic numbers, aren't they? Yeah. Think about, think about the fact that in a race where contributions are legally capped, George, uh, George P.'s father, Jeb, was able to raise $100 million yep. for president. George P. is running in a race where contributions are not capped, and he's not doing anything. He's just doing a fraction of those sorts of numbers. You would think P. would have access to that same donor network and, and you know really get a war chest going here. So P. went to meet with Trump to ask the question, how much are you going to get involved in this race? And Trump maybe didn't really quite answer that question, but he did say a version of this. He said, look, I like you, George P. Bush, but there is no one else in the whole country who would file that lawsuit for me to try to overturn election results in other states other than Ken Paxton. So I'm with him 100%. So I think what you saw last night at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's going to be involved in this. Yeah. Right? And that, that maybe doesn't necessarily mean he's going to come here and campaign, although he could. This is one of those races that could be, I hate to use the word bellwether, but could be a test for Trump's real uh, influence in the Republican Party, right? This, this might be where Trump really wants to put his stamp on something and say, the guy that I'm endorsing is the one who was able to be victorious over someone who's part of the Bush dynasty and all these other Republicans. And and look, that's very important to the former president. He, yes. he wants to be in charge of the Republican Party, right? That's why he's making these different endorsements. He's had some mixed results. But I do think that you've seen all across the country, the trend is toward, within the GOP nationally, is toward having Trump still be the guy and yeah. potentially the nominee again in 2024. Yeah, he represents something within the party that is just going to be so hard for, you know, certainly someone like George P to overcome. You know, it just I'm just not sure how he does it. And and like in the Bush family, it's it's funny because they've come out, you know, you know, they, they've helped other, you know, members of the Bush family when they run for office. You know, when uh, you think of 2018, you know, they helped in congressional races, uh, you know, for other Bush family members and things like that. So so it's not unheard of. But in this case, you just wonder, it's like, are we going to see a Jeb Bush, you know, rallying, you know, some fundraisers around? You know, for George P, you know, does that hurt George P, you know, before a primary? Uh, if it gets reported out that, you know, right. you know, George you know, uh, Jeb and you know, George W came all out in helping support him in his campaign. It's like, I'm not sure if that's, a, you know, helpful for George P. And I, and, right. and, and I have to say, I'm still kind of left with this thing. Like, I'm still confused why George P jumped into this you know, to some degree. Because I'm sitting there thinking, like, you know, in four years... You know, there's going to be a big shuffling of politics. We know Dan Patrick's already not running for re-election. I have a said, hard yeah. time believing, you know, Greg Abbott would go for a fourth term. It, it feels like every seat in the state of Texas could be up and open for play. Uh, and they're all open seats. And this year he decided to take on Ken Paxton, who you knew was going to get Trump's you know, endorsement, right? I mean, you know, it Ken seemed Paxton, pretty obvious. Yeah. Ken Paxton was on January 6th. He was with Trump, right. you, know, you know, before the assault on the Capitol. It's like right. he was with him, you know, rallying the same crowd. Literally there Trump. at the rally. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. literally the same crowd that would eventually move down the road. <laughs> it's just like, it's hard not to think that Trump is now forever connected with you know, Paxton and vice versa. It's never going to become undone unless right. you know, something strange that we can't see happening happens. Yeah. It, to me, it makes the smartest guy in the statewide roster of Republicans would be Glenn Hager, who almost never gets any criticism from his right. 
yeah. ever uh, on anything um, is, is in a statewide office and therefore is in good position to raise a lot of money. As you say, um, it, it may be that all of these seats are up, you know, in the next midterm. And in the meantime, you just kind of stay in that office, stay in the land office. George P. Bush, though, unlike Hager, has taken criticism from all over the place True. on a True. variety of uh, issues, right, on uh, the Alamo. A lot of criticism of, about the way they've handled, you know, the redevelopment down there and all that. That in and of itself is, as as insiders would say, might be a little technical term here, but an S show at, at the Alamo. And then uh, all the criticism over the housing uh, situation after Hurricane Harvey, yes. right? It, where there's, you know, that, that's an, a part of the state that's rich with voters. I think the area affected by Harvey is it, it it makes up something like 30% or more of the people who vote in a republican primary yeah exactly and maybe even in the in the state if you just extrapolate out so big issues for george p there it may just be that he was tired of being land commissioner and saying hey look i'm either up or out I, i'm i'm either moving on to this other thing or i'm just done with politics and it may be that he's just done with politics i don't know about you but i'm definitely done with this show yeah, it feels like an omnibus show at this point. It was it? like an omnibus show. We covered everything. If you enjoyed this omnibus show, you'll get more of them if you're a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcasts, including so many people on Spotify. I had just been ignoring that. I had some people tell me that's the best way to listen. Is it, Sarah? Is it the best way to listen? I don't know. I, I like listening on Spotify. I think they're all the same, but it, I don't I don't know the difference. Anyway, give us the best rating that you can and leave a review so we will know what you think, even if you're a hater. In fact, my challenge is this. If you hate the show, write as long a review as you can. I'd like to read it. <laughs> Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. We'll see you right here next time. Mm-hmm.